So we're sitting here in my living room. I'm sitting here with Andrew Galloway, president of Electrify Records. I've known Andrew for about 15 years. Can you believe it's been 15 wow. years? I, yes and no. <laughs> but but yes, time flies because we've been having fun. But Yeah, so and I think... I, I remember um, when I met you, actually. I yeah, I met you yeah. on the first weekend that I decided to... Oh, when I was contemplating on doing a project on the blues, and I want to interview... Um, a bunch of blues musicians were playing at the Harbor Front right. Blues Festival, and you were kind enough to allow me to interview Johnny Laws. Was so, it Johnny Laws or was it Snooky and Mel? You wouldn't let me interview Snooky and Mel. I wouldn't let you. No, I remember that. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't me. It was. <laughs> no, I know. And this is I what know. I remember. I remember you were very, very protective of your artist. So for whatever reason, I said, do you think I could interview Snooky? And you kind of said, no, maybe in the future. It was a small label, and I only had a couple of artists. I had to be protective of them. So, but I remember that being, you were very protective of your artists, which I kind of, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, but I really respected that. And, and you did come through. I wound up interviewing Mel Brown and, and Snooky prior later on. But I, I respected you for that, the, the way you treated your artists. Well, I was really fortunate to work with, those folks and and they were older gentlemen at the time so i thought you know i didn't want to wear them out you know but it was great it was great i i pinch myself sometimes that you know when we look back oh, for like sure. you say 15 years ago and look at the people you interviewed and the people i was lucky enough to record and you know yeah no i it's, mean it's just it's, like the, the world has changed great deal yes in the last 15 it was years. it was magic and there's you know there's we're keeping busy still and there's still lots of great sure. artists out there and stuff going on but that that generation of artists that those folks were yeah. something special and, and you know what as uh as people as almost as much as artists i mean they were those guys were like the blues. Yeah. Like, like, hi, we're the guys that invented the blues. <laughs> well, and I were like, we know. I think when you come from that background and that time, it's just a totally different world. And when you think about Snooky traveling from city to city, just getting on, on a train and winding up wherever he may. He may, I know. That was such a different world. And, yeah. and, and you, you know, I remember you got that great video uh, interview at the hotel with Snooky. Yeah, that's pretty Which amazing. to this day I love to watch. That's that's the best interview I've ever seen of Snooky. And I remember at the time the little part I played in, in helping set it up and you didn't really know Snooky well and you said, Could I bring him a bottle of wine or is there anything he would like? Which is yes. the decent kind of character you are. <laughs> and I said, You know what? And I knew Snooky, like Snooky didn't drink, didn't have anything to do with drugs ever, and just was a, a clean living guy. And he had, you know, he, he had diabetes that he kept yeah. under control for many years, but he loved like good food. I, and I said, bring him a quart of strawberries or something. And that's what won and, him and over. And man, he was, I've, that's, he was one happy camper when those strawberries arrived yeah. and uh, it translated into a great interview. I so, think it did. You know? Thank you very much. And I, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of what I did, um, I got a lot of the credibility I got through working with your artists. You were giving, you know, you're kind oh. enough to give me access to people like Snooky and Mel Brown. 
And those, you know, when you work with people like that, it just gives you a lot more credibility, I think. And you returned the favor because once you had your talking blues show on Bravo up and running, and that was the best blues show going, I immediately introduced myself as, hi, I'm a friend of Mako Funasakas. <laughs> yeah. And that open in turn opened many doors for me. <laughs> a few were slammed in my face, but yeah. most were open. So, <laughs> so, so you know, so it, it's cool. It, yeah, we did kind of get into it at, at roughly the mm-hmm. the same time. I mean, I know you've you've loved music since you were a kid, right? Oh, for sure. How did you get into the whole blues thing? Um, well, the short story is I saw Howlin' Wolf uh, when I was about 17 and looked about 12 at the Colonial uh, Tavern on Young Street, which is a legendary place long gone, sadly, mm-hmm. as is the wolf. And I went with a couple of friends of mine to get into a rock club to see a rock band to meet girls, and it was sold out, so that wasn't happening. So we walked by the Colonial, and I saw a sign in the window. It said, appearing this week direct from Chicago, Chess GRT recording artist, Howlin' Wolf, and I thought, this is some guy that like wrote a song for Cream, or there's something. Hmm. So we went in, and we were allowed to kind of. So you didn't really know. No, didn't know, didn't wow. know. Just knew knew it was somebody that had something to do with either rock music back in the day or blues. You know, kind of one of the inventors of of 20th century blues, and I just had no preparation for it you know with movies they do a yeah. thing where it's a, maybe too intense for younger viewers that was totally the case of seeing Alan Wolf and Eddie Shaw and Wolf wasn't in the greatest health at that time and Eddie Shaw his band leader you know and Hubert was there and they they looked out for him but once he was out there doing his thing it was just mind-changing you know it my world was just it shook upside down it was just it was so good Wow. It was great. So then I got into the blues. But, I, you know, I'm like you. I like all kinds of music. And, uh, you know, how about yourself? I just stumbled on it when I... I mean, I used to love the blues when, when it was a rock thing for me. So yeah. through people yeah. like Johnny Winter and yeah. the Allman Brothers. Oh, And, you know, Both I really great. didn't know that that was actually the blues. But that's what I was listening to. And in the search of the blues, it was... It was um, I was starting to listen to internet radio and I right. hooked on to Southern Rock and then yeah, a yeah. blues station. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it was like, hmm, what is this thing? And, and like you, the British invasion, like mm-hmm. the Stones and the Yardbirds and the Who. Yeah. And, you know, you, you could hear the R&B and the blues roots there. And that, it, you know, but it was, there was no internet. There was no, there was a handful of books, right. literally a handful. So to, to learn further back, you know, to 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 trace it back to the source was not a an easy job like it is Especially now. Especially from Toronto, Canada. Yes, true. But so how true. does how does the kid who saw Howlin' Wolf and was impressed by it become the record, the blues record label president? Through a very long path. <laughs> um, was that like always a dream, or how? Did- well, I love I love music, and, and and that led into collecting records. You know, I loved. I loved, you know, having the music and building a kind of library of right. stuff I really liked. And then, you know, I got into the thing of, gee, I'd like to have a, a label. And, and I was, um, I could describe it as I was just in time to be almost too late in, in terms of the people I was able to right. record. So so I had a audiovisual company with my brother and we did corporate communications and 
that was great for the disposable income, but it wasn't, you know, getting the label done. So I was coming up to my 40th birthday, and I thought, gee, if I'm going to do this, I better, you know, clock's a ticking, now's the time. So um, That's a pretty gutsy move. Well, yeah, that was hard work, though, that corporate <laughs> stuff. So that, that helped me a lot, too, make up my mind. So I sold my share of the business to my brother, and uh, I, I launched the label in... in well, we recorded our first album in 1996, and it came out January 97. So I, I always look at, like, January of 97 as the start of it because you can't be a record label till you put a record out. So. Right. And that was little Max Simmons, a Chicago artist. Uh, so did you when, you, when you decided that you would follow this dream of yeah. becoming a record label president or run a blues label, what did you have in mind? Like, did you did you have Max Simmons in mind to record, or how did that come about? I I had in mind to record somebody good. I, I knew I wanted to work with older artists. I wanted to work with this real deal blues artists, you know, African American, African Canadian artists, and I wanted to work with people that either hadn't been recorded, or hadn't been recorded well, or hadn't been recorded for for years and years, but that were still, you know really vital good players and had something interesting to say musically and and so it was kind of a short list to start out with but uh, a guy dr nick that we both know a harp player and a good guy he used to go down to chicago and uh go to jam sessions and he'd go to roses and see uh, a guy little malcolm little max simmons who'd been in chicago since the 50s and was quite an interesting character in, in many ways but a, a great singer and a great harp player who'd never really got out of the chicagoland area too much but uh so i would go down to chicago as well and I, I went to see him at roses a few times and got to know him and and i thought man this is a guy that would be a great this guy fits everything i'm looking to do so mm -hmm. what did you know about the record industry then not much and i'll tell you when you start a record label uh there's nobody around to hand out pamphlets on how you do it, you know? It's kind of, uh, you have to find out as you go along, once you're up and running and doing things, there are other people that in the business that'll share information or you can cry on each other's shoulder at times. But, but yeah, there's there's no course you can take. So you, you obviously had a business background. That helped a lot. That helped a lot. I, I mean, in some ways I wish, like, why didn't I do this when I was 30 instead of when I was 40? And, you know, people like, Ed, you know, in the 80s, people like Etta James were up playing the Brunswick House for a week. And I thought, gee, how cool would it have been to do an Etta James? You know, just before kind of the Stevie Ray Vaughan-inspired right. mid-'80s blues revival, there was a lot of good blues artists around without a label, you know, not really doing a lot other than touring to pay the bills. I thought, wow, how good would that have been? But on the other hand, I didn't have the business experience uh, that I did later, and that really is what saved my bacon is is being able to my my poor old mother who was a bookkeeper who um she and i still don't remember everything she taught me but um she taught me how to run a set of books and how to be able to pay people and how to you know keep a cash flow going right. and that's what really has kept me going till now knowing having that knowledge and then you know the love the love of the music. So. Did you so when you started the thing? Did you think, okay, here's the goal that I have, or do you have like I don't know how you go into? Do you think I'm going to sell X number of units, and hopefully by the end of the year I will have 
Well, the year I started, 1997, was the peak of CD sales in the world. More CDs were sold in 1997. Since then, and I try not to take this personally, but since then, when I entered the fray, every year has been a steady and deep plunging decline, you know, to where we're at now. But did you have a number in mind? Um, I didn't really, I, I had a number in mind, but I, I didn't really know if that was realistic or, or accurate. And in the first few years, we sold more uh, units than I thought we would. And uh, then later, at times, we would sell less than I thought we would. So, What was the biggest surprise, do you think? Um, it's, it was nice to be accepted. It was nice to have things out uh, that people enjoyed and would buy and would tell their friends and and it was just to meet the artists you know folks we talked mm-hmm. about earlier that you knew well Snooky Pryor Mel Brown I mean Mel Brown Mel we'll, Brown. we'll have to do a whole thing on Mel Brown again <laughs> sure. sometime or people can watch the great DVD you did Thank on you. him you know and uh yeah just meeting those people Willie Big Eyes Smith uh, Billy Boy Arnold who's still with us thankfully Curly Bridges, you know, some of them were kind of names in the blues, mm-hmm. and some of them weren't. But you know, what's what's the greatest thing you've learned from this experience of being in the blues, or to, with your involvement in the blues? What's the greatest? You lesson? meet some cool people. You meet some of the other brand too, but you do meet overwhelmingly a lot of really cool, interesting, interesting people, and you don't regret it. I'm looking at. I'm 18 months away from it being. 20 years old wow which yeah i know i'm shaking my head at that too and uh i still enjoy it you know i mean there's some days you enjoy it a lot more <laughs> if you get a keeping as you well know if you get a keeping the blues alive award that's a good day for sure and if you're doing paperwork and writing invoices and paying bills all day that's maybe not so good a day but you know you keep going so- and i have no regrets i look back and i look at like things you know you were there that we that were done in the first few years i'm like wow it's a miracle i knew those people let alone that they 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 worked uh you know we worked together so 18 plus years how many records have you released um 90 90 wow. yes and i think i figured it out a little while back it was sold like over 200,000 cds wow. Now that's on 90 CDs, but yeah, yeah. a wise man once told me if you sell, if you have 100 CDs and each one sells 5,000 copies, that's the same as having one CD that sold half a million copies. And, right. You know, so, and and I operate firmly on the policy of the the last CD hopefully pays for the next CD. So, and the cha- the business has changed a lot, especially in the last five years. How it has. Have you adjusted it, with that? Well. You know, um, vinyl, we're putting our first vinyl album out on Harrison Kennedy very soon. And uh, iTunes, the digital world has has come along and it's it's not all bad. It's, you know, I'm a, I'm a physical world guy. I like a vinyl or CDs or a physical product, but I understand a lot of people don't you know or or they prefer to just go and get a couple of songs on itunes and 
pay for it and and i appreciate that that's great i'm happy to provide music anyway i get some people still write me letters like it's 1955 dear sir please send your catalog to such and such address and i mail a, a physical catalog so they, you still have a physical catalog. yeah and they check off what they want and send a check back and i mail them the cds and that's good and other people while i'm sleeping peacefully at night they're <laughs> downloading stuff and ka-ching i make 80 cents or something so you know so is the downloads for blues music? Is it albums or is it songs? Sometimes it's albums, but it seems to be more, and I think we're returning to the format of the single, which is cool because I think that's how it started out with 78s. It was the one song. You remember as a kid, you'd get into a group because I like this song or I like, or like, wow, there's two good songs on this album. Who knew? So, and then, you know, kind of the, the evil large record labels in the 80s are like, oh, say, kid, you like that song? Okay, for eighteen ninety nine, you can buy the CD and get that song. You're also going to get 12 other songs you might not want. But but no, it's been good because uh, cash flow, it, it's great iTunes. You're going to get, with downloads, you're going to get paid on a monthly basis. And uh, I've been lucky to work with a good physical distributor to City Hall Records out of San Rafael, California, that have really done a good job of, and that's a tough job. I mean, having a blues label stuff, being a, a music distributor these days is even tougher, but over the years, they've always paid me, and they've always got my stuff out there, so. I mean, it's so, it's so sad to go to different cities and see the, oh, the record label, record stores yeah. that used to be there aren't. Yes, yeah. And, and you and I both know how much we like visiting our record you stores and I in could, cities. We could do that as a full-time job, I believe. Yes. We travel around and go to record stores. But in <laughs> that environment of less CD stores, record yeah. stores, mm. how does the music industry survive? Well, fortunately, touring artists like Mark Hummel mm -hmm. is the guy who's been with me uh, from California since very early days. And, you know, Sam Myers, Snooky Pryor, they were all a big fan of Mark's. And Mark's keeping the uh, flame alive out there, mm -hmm. touring constantly and selling product off the stage to the crowds who've just enjoyed a, one of his performances. That goes a long way. That really helps, you know. Uh, it's an adjustment, you know, but I think people that go to a good blues show, they want a souvenir of that. Either they want a souvenir that evening and they want to buy an LP or a CD or, like you mentioned earlier, their local CD store is closed and, and you know, this is their best chance to, when you're right there with the artist with right. a CD in his hand, that's a good way to, to do it. But, but you know, some record stores are coming back. It's a little, it, it's tough. I know what you mean, the great, huge like Sam the Record Man in mm -hmm. Toronto, the the fact that's gone, and A&A's, the Tower, Tower, Records. Tower Records, you know, the Tower Records in Memphis. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try not to weep openly. <laughs> you know, those were great places to hang out, and also you would hear live music in a lot of those stores, mm -hmm. which is great, you know. I remember seeing Michael Powers and, and yeah. people at those, in stores, in stores were great, but that's, that's kind of coming back a little bit, but it's more a specialty item now. So are you hopeful for the future of the music industry? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. You know, for as long as I'm going to be on the planet. <laughs> but no, no, I am. I am because I really think the whole, the whole cool thing and the thing I take some satisfaction from is, say someone like Curly Bridges, who was kind of a journeyman mm -hmm. R&B guy and really brought... You know, 1955, he came up to, to Canada and, and, and started playing the Holiday Tavern in Toronto. And um, 
the Esquire Show Bar in Montreal with the Frank Motley. And these were guys from, from North Carolina who'd lived in Washington. And it, they were playing like very early rock and roll, R&B, blues. You know, Curly was a great vocalist and real cool piano pounder as well. Um, that's, you know, he hadn't recorded. After I put the first album out in 97, a guy, Bill Monson, said, you know, Curly Bridges lives up in Barrie. And I'm like, really? And and I knew him from his records. They did an early version of Hound Dog, mm-hmm. the big mama Thornton thing that Elvis did. And and so I knew some of his early records. And, and I went to, th- this was the early part of Electrify, is I would go and find a great artist and I would talk to them. And and I met Curly and I, I saw him at a club and he was doing like Moon River, you know, it was kind of musical wallpaper lounge thing he, he was very good but yeah, sure. but he told me the median you know the median age in the club was about 80 he said come back for the last set all these people will be home tucked in bed and i'll play some blues for you and i, and I did and he started playing some like big joe turner stuff and it was just it was just great I, oh man i gotta record this guy he's a real deal and i said you know i said do you have any interest in making a record nope no interest at all you know he'd had a few bad experiences and he hadn't recorded at that time in about like 24 25 years so eventually i got to know him and talked to him and and he decided to do one and and he was real happy with it so long story short there there's evidence on a lot of artists like little max simmons curly bridges that just how good they were they're not here anymore but their albums are their music was you know recorded and put down according to their wishes the way they wanted to do it because I I never fancied myself as you know Phil Spector I I just was like let's get a comfortable environment for the artists let's be a sounding board for the artists let's get them let's get the best players possible and and let's let them in effect make the uh make the record so you know if I remember correctly, can you just tell me what Curly's question to you was when he finally agreed to? Oh yeah, so I'm wearing Curly down, you know. I, I'm going like, gee, you know, Curly, this would be a great idea, and you know, uh, and and he was he was ticked off because years before he'd recorded an album, and uh, they wouldn't let him go to the mixing sections, right. which is which is uh, you know, and I said, well, listen come with me and we'll mix the album you'll be there and you'll have a say in the whole process you know and then so i think he just got sick of me showing up asking him and he finally said okay i'll do one and he said like how much is it gonna cost me (laughs) part of part of that statement is heartbreaking but part of it was like oh geez i can see what this guy's with and i said nothing in fact if things go right you may actually make a little money out of this you know so so that was, and the same thing with Mel Brown was like, I knew from from working with Snooky Pryor, mm-hmm. you know, which Gary Kendall set up, and then I got to know Snooky, and and uh, he record, and he said, and Snooky said to me, and he didn't know me from Adam at the time, but he, I think he'd heard the little Max Simmons, or he'd heard of that Mac had done this album, and, and Snooky just liked to record. I think he did an album for Blind Pig the same summer, and he. he he might have done three albums that one summer, but fortunately, one was with me. And he came up to Toronto, and he phoned me up, and we agreed on the money. Everything was good. And he said, listen, there's a guy who lives up near you called Mel Brown. Do you know him? I go, yeah, I know of him. I, I know him a little bit. And he goes, okay, get Mel Brown, and I don't care who else you get. 
So I'm like, okay, okay. So I got to know Mel through that, and and the days of that, that was like 19, that was like the late summer of 1998 at a place called Hall of Music that's long gone as well. You know, the artists are gone, the studios are gone. Thank God you and I are still here. Yes, Um, the most important part. Yeah, absolutely. And and I got to, and Mel was the same way. Like, so Mel came into play, and they hadn't seen each other. They were very tight from working at Antone's in Austin, Texas for years. And Mel ran the house band there for about 10 years. And he got to know Snooky. And he and Snooky, there was a special bond. Those guys were like brothers. It was a little bit mm-hmm. father and son. And it was, and it would change who would be the father and who would be the son from day to day. And, and, but it was more like they were brothers. And, and they just enjoyed each other's coming. They didn't, they didn't even really say a lot to each no, other. And I found that really interesting. That, you knew that. Yeah, you know, like they yeah. Was, I know that they were close. And I know that they thought the world of one another. Yes. But it wasn't like they're going to hang out and have every meal together no. and go out bowling or something no but they, but they love but but yeah. like and especially musically you know Snooky yeah. would go mel brown he's the tops man you can't beat and Snooky probably played with some pretty good people homesick james you know the the list goes on and on but uh yeah they they had a special thing kind of going there so they started playing after 10 years and not seeing each other they started playing they were as tight as if they just come back from a two-year tour you know, yeah. it, it was, they had a musical mental telepathy that, that was staggering, like, like little needed to be discussed. It was just counted in and here we go. And the results were, were, were great. So then I, I was so impressed with, with Mel and his work on that session. I said, Mel, you know, have you ever thought of doing like an album? You know, and he's, and he hadn't done an album in like over 10 years at that right. time. And he said, no, buddy, I'm pretty much retired. I play golf. And, you know, I play a little music to get out of the house. And, and no, no, I don't want to do anything that might give me bad dreams or make me upset. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a good thing to live by. But so finally I was able to wear Mel down and he said, okay, buddy, we'll do one. And he had a great band too, the home records, you know, Jimmy Boudreaux and, and so many good players. And so we did the one, Neck Bones and Caviar, and uh, it won the WC Handy Award in the year 2000 for Blues Comeback Recording of the Year. So I know he was pleased about that, mm-hmm. you know, but you knew, you knew Mel as well as I did, and he was a... He was an interesting guy. Yeah, he was definitely an interesting guy. Is that, would, you, would it be fair to say that that album... Neckbones has a special place in your heart. Oh, sure. That was, that was, well, one, it was like, you know, and I'll give Mel all the credit, it was a, a fabulous album. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, great to see him doing a, an album that he could do that level of work. And, that, yeah. and I felt great. I'm glad I asked him because nobody else was really asking him and it happened. And he was pleased that, you know, he won the WC Handy and it really helped the label. I often say, Without Snooky Pryor and Mel Brown, I don't know if there would be an Electrify Records today because they really put me on the map. Those guys, you know. But you got to give yourself some credit. Oh, for I do. Well, yeah, I worked hard, many, many a day and night. But and but for it wearing was those, people down. Yes, for wearing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. But, so I presume at this point, and I know for a fact that a lot of musicians come to you and and say, "Hey, I got a new CD. You want to put it out." Um, probably more so than ever, you're probably sent CDs and asked if you would put it out. What would be, just to eliminate the number of CDs that people send you, what, what's the criteria on how you would decide on 
who you would sign or who you want to work with? Yeah, well, well, some do, you know, and and some don't. I mean, a lot of people just put their own CD out these right. days because it's it's a lot easier, you you know. Um, I mean, and it's good and bad. I won't go into we won't go into we'll save that topic for another time, but. Yeah. But um, yeah, and, and I always try and respond and, and stress some of the positive of, of what I, and a lot of it is, is pretty good stuff, but a lot of it, the criteria these days is, could I sell any more copies of this with it being on the label and promoting it than you could yourself? And right. there's a lot of artists and it's not a knock on them. They're excellent artists, but they're gonna sell as many, so there's no point me really putting it out. You know, they're gonna sell what it's going to sell themselves, you know. But I have, I have some, uh, Harmonica Shaw from Detroit, that, and I'd heard of him, I'd heard of him, but Howard Glazer, who was his guitar player at the time, he sent uh, a demo thing, and, and that's a guy I signed from, you know, getting a CD in the mail, so. But do you look at how much they tour? Do you look at... Well, ideally, you want somebody who tours. Ideally, you want, for a while, it was either... You could have a hard-working band that was out there, like someone like Mark Hummel, who's out there touring all the time, or Shakira Saeda, a super talented mm-hmm. uh, lady who's also always out there, you know, playing the music live. Or you could look like, you could be like a blues legend. You could be like a Snooky Pryor or a Billy Boy Arnold or someone who's like, wow, they've been around since the 50s. They're, they're a great talent. They're maybe going to play a few festivals each year, but they're not really going to go out, jump in a van and go out for six weeks anywhere. But they have enough name recognition and there's, you know, that people are going to be aware of them and be interested in any new recording they might have. So, But now it's changed with really the passing of so many of that mm-hmm. generation, as you know, that there's not too many kind of blues legends that you can just sell enough copies based on their name and their history so it's more back to the you know hard-working bands out touring the road who've who've built a following through their talent in in the 18 plus years that you've been doing this was there ever a time where um you made a mistake or that the label was in jeopardy a time i made a mistake (laughs) Yeah, there was many times. Well, you know, it goes back to the thing of you're learning by doing it. You know, there was no school. There was no course. It was trial and error. But the great thing is you only make that mistake once because you certainly remember it. And I did get into a bit of financial uh, uh, trouble at one time in about, man, about nine years ago, you know, because it was really starting to impact the drop in sales Mm -hmm. and I had a lot of artists on the label at that time, and you know, I, I'm since working with fewer artists because I think it's better to do a better job for less people than do less of a job for right. for more people. But yeah, th- there was uh, so I kind of restructured th- uh, things a bit, and then it's been it's been fine since then. But I try and live within my means, and the good thing is with my Scottish heritage, I, I know how to uh, record an album without any kind of uh, creative cutbacks but do it as economically feasible as possible because that benefits the artist too you don't want to like make an album that's not gonna that's costs three times what it's ever going to make because then you're going to really think twice about ever recording with that artist again and also you know you want to make the artist some money as well you know um 
What makes a good blues album in your mind? Uh, real and original, you know. Uh, a guy like Julian Fouth, who I've been lucky to uh, work with, he won the Juno Award and, and a great, very quiet, gentlemanly guy at times. And then, you know, no, but a, a deep thinker without a doubt and a true, you know, student of the blues. And But he's able to play something that's like as up-to-date as five minutes ago, but it could be 1928 as well, mm -hmm. you know. He's got that voice and 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 a great keyboard player and and the, it breaks my heart how few keyboard play. When I started 18 years ago, you know there was the harp players, the guitar players, the singers, and the keyboard players. And now it's like, yeah, what happened to the keyboard players? You know, there's uh, Marcia Ball. There's certainly mm -hmm. great great players still around, but there's just not a lot of new artists coming that are rooted in being a keyboard player and even though julian's an excellent guitar player he's he's you know he's a barrel house piano man if you ask him who are you and what do you do that's what he'll tell you and i love the sound of like you know real piano so so true and original and different you know it's uh it's a small order you just you know <laughs> if, if you can be brilliant on your instrument have a fantastic voice and write memorable insanely original songs there you go well that's the key right i mean songs is yeah, so yes. important and it's not that easy to write within the confines of the blues of the three chords right, or whatever right, to write yeah. something and then to make it original it's very difficult you would think well it's like a 12 bar progression mm -hmm. and you know, repeat so and we'll pick a common theme and we'll you know we'll knock off 10 or 12 of these songs <laughs> in a day and we'll have a great album but i think it's one of the hardest genres to write an original and and unfortunately not not to knock uh uh anyone but there's it, it's evolved into the great blues were all great story songs mm -hmm. you know they were all three and a half minutes or three minutes long they told you start to finish a very cool um story you heard some great singing you heard some great playing you heard a ton of mood and atmosphere and it was a little story given to you uh that would stick with you now a lot of blues songs are like nine, ten minutes long, and you've got like an introductory line, and then you've got like a five-minute guitar solo, and then you've got like uh, another five-minute guitar solo on the way out, then you've got a line at the end, and right. it's 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 been transformed into a, a venue to uh, showcase your instrumental abilities rather than tell the audience a story. So. I look for people like Paul Osher is a guy that could mm -hmm. could do that. You, you know, there's there's a number of artists that still write, you know, story songs. That's what I like. And I just think that's such a difficult thing. And I, there's so many yeah. great artists out there. But you say, name me one classic song that they've written. And they go, mm. It's very tough. Yeah, it's it very, tough. it's, and, and, you, and you know, the test of that is, and Mel Brown told me this years ago, um, he said, like, in the 50s, 60s, you would turn on a blues radio show, and you would instantly know, well, that's John Lee Hooker. Mm -hmm. And even if it was a new song, that's Jimmy Reed, you know, that's going to be Junior Wells. You just knew who it was. Right. That's Muddy, that's Wolf. Everybody had a signature sound. Now you can turn on a blues radio show, and it's you can hear a, a vast array of interesting music, but you don't really know who that is you know it's it's not so much you know yeah, a signature sure. sounds a bit lacking but so with 20 years 
right ahead there, you know, a year and a half or whatever. Do you have um, do you have plans? Like, how far out do you plan? Like, is there, is there a plan for what the twentieth year will bring to? I'm starting to think about that now because it's that's a good question because um, you got to work about a year ahead, you know, and then you're still running around doing things absolutely at the last minute. Right. But um, if you can plan a year ahead, it's good. And um, so I can submit my solo album. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're ready for it. Okay, <laughs> I'll give you a special mailing address. <laughs> Very special. No. <laughs> No, but listen. Let, let's uh, thank you for your interest in Electrify. Thanks for having me on on this thank one, you. and I'm excited. I'm fanboy number one. I'll be I'll be tuned into all uh, future episodes. And you are episode number one. So thank you very much for doing thank this. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Likewise, brother.